If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one underneath the seat near you or in front of you. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, uh, you should be able to just kind of turn it to the middle and maybe scoot a little bit to the left and you'll find Ecclesiastes or just look for page 553 in those pew Bibles. I'm going to begin reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that now as we turn our attention to your word that you would help us. We know that as we come to this moment in the service that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are hearing. Lord, that he would want to divert our attention to think of any number of things, things that might be important in and of themselves, but should not take precedent in this moment over your word. Help all of us. Help me, Lord, that we might focus our minds on the scripture. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding. That is why we've turned our attention to this book, Ecclesiastes. And Lord, we ask that we would think much of Christ who gave his life for the people that he so loved. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adam writes about deep thought. The powerful supercomputer tasked with determining the, question, the answer to the life, the universe, and everything. It takes the computer a long time to check and to double-check all of its computations, seven and a half million years to be exact, but eventually it spits out a simple, unambiguous answer. The meaning to life is 42. 42, someone yells at the computer? Is that all you have got to show for seven and a half million years' work? I checked it very thoroughly, said Deep Thought. And that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. Deep down, everybody wants to know the meaning of life. But to get the right answer, we have to ask the right question in the right way. This is our quest in the book of Ecclesiastes, to come to a true, accurate understanding of life the universe, and everything, which hopefully will take less than seven and a half million years. Though one of our members did email me and told me that I could take as long as I would like in the book. 
But before we consider the first of the preacher's attempts to ascertain an accurate understanding of life, the universe, and everything in verses 12 through 18, let's notice first life in the mist. Look again in chapter 1, verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. After introducing the author, the preacher, and stating his theme, vanity of vanities, all is vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Ecclesiastes offers a series of examples that describe life in the mist in verses 4 through 11. The Hebrew word hebel, which we translate vanity, doesn't mean meaningless, as if the preacher is speaking like an undergraduate philosophy student who has just come home for summer break after a year of studies only to declare to his family and all of his friends that everything is pointless and life has no meaning at all. Rather, the preacher is saying that everything is a mist. It's a vapor. It's a puff of wind, a bit of smoke. Life is a mirage, which is actually a common biblical idea. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 39. should be just to the left of Ecclesiastes. Psalm 39, verse 5, the psalmist writes this. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now drop down to verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is like a mere breath. We see that same teaching again later in the Psalter in Psalm 144, verse 3, when he writes, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. But this teaching isn't relegated only to the Old Testament. James, the wisdom book of the New Testament, says in chapter 4, verse 14, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You get the idea. It's just like a cold winter day here in Pennsylvania. You walk outside, you breathe, and it's gone. That is your life. The idiom is not only practical, it's biblical, and in Ecclesiastes, the preacher seeks to prove his point by observing constant motion without lasting achievement in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 1 in at least five ways. First, life is monotonous. 
Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Some of us love routine, but even those of us who love routine admit that routines are boring. We love routines because we're either addicted to efficiency or we fear change. As the sun rises, so the sun sets. So you wake up and go to work and go to bed to wake up and go to work and go to bed again so that you can wake up and go to work and go to bed another time. And like the waves at the seashore, the predictability of life just lulls you to sleep so that you no longer feel, because you really no longer care. It's just the same old, same old. For some of us, if we're honest, it's actually the humdrum nature of life that actually drives us insane and drives us to sin. It is one of the chief reasons that so many of us actually do the things that we do to spice things up to experience the thrill again, to be spontaneously unpredictable. Nobody will be able to know how we live our life so that we can feel. At the end of a lifetime of people watching, the preacher says, life in the mist is routine and therefore vanity. Second, life is elusive. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes Around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. A few years ago, we were sitting in our living room as the sunlight was shining down upon us while we were playing around our coffee table, and while we sat there, I just looked over at Michael, who was probably about two at the time, holding his hand in the sun and slowly closing his fingers with the hope of catching the light, only to slowly open them and find that it wasn't there. The result did not deter him at all. He never quit. He just went slower and slower and slower, but it never produced the desired result. The preacher says that is what life in the mist is like. It's elusive. Just when you think you've got it, it's gone. Or Jesus said it like this in the parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, but God said to him, fool, this night your life is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Third, life is restless. Look at verse, eight, or verse 7 and 8. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, but a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Just as water pours into the sea and the ocean over and over again without ever filling it up, mankind is insatiable. We never reach a point of complete satisfaction. We get that house, we want a bigger one. We get that job, want a better one. We get that car, we want a newer one. We get that spouse, 
We want a more useful one. We get that kid, we want another one. We get that degree, we want a more prestigious one. We win that election, we look to the next one. We never think. This is it. I am finally full. I have seen everything that I can see. I have heard everything that I can hear. I have taken in all that I can possibly take in. I've given out absolutely everything that I could possibly give out. And now I am completely satisfied. The preacher says that is what life in the mist is like. Like the eye binge-watching Disney+, Plus, or the ear binge-listening on Spotify, we never have had enough. We have never done enough. We have never experienced enough. We have never achieved enough. Friends, just ask yourself, when was the last time that you said to somebody, I am content and completely satisfied. I no longer want anything. Never. Fourth, life is repetitive. Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. The preacher says that what seems new is in fact old. A new government is still a government, and we've seen those. A new baby is still a baby, and we've seen many, especially in the last few years. A new car is still a form of transportation, and people have always been looking for ways to transport themselves faster and more quickly. Even landing on the moon is still a form of exploration and adventure, just like that of humans across the centuries. And as one writer noted, space travel is a good example of precisely the preacher's point. He doesn't mean no new thing has ever been invented in the world, for that clearly is not true. He means that nothing new we can ever discover can break the cycle and finally satisfy us. When we conquer our solar system, we will just go and try to conquer the galaxies beyond. We will never have our fill. And that basic human impulse that drove us all the way to the moon in the first place has already been in the ages before us. Life in the mist isn't novel, which is why people who have lived for any length of time can say, trends and fashions come and go and come right back again. Fifth, life is ending. Now look at verse 4 first. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now drop down to verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. A hundred years after you have lived, 100 years after your death, no one will ever know that you were alive. How's that for perspective? We gain nothing from working our fingers to the bone and burning the midnight oil and grinding ourselves to death because the world will just go on impervious to everything that we've ever done and it won't remember us anyways, which is what we all so desperately want, a legacy that matters. 
I dare say probably everybody in this room at some point has said, I want my life to count. I want my life to be one that is remembered. I want my life to be one that mattered for eternity. And probably in college, many of us thought, I'm going to change the world. Only to realize that we're grinding and we're pushing, we're driving and we're staying up late and we're waking up early. And the world just grinds on right over the top of us. The preacher says life in the mist is fleeting and that we are all just pretending that things should not be like this for us. That we're all just pretending that we're different. That we will finally be the ones or the one, the generation, the country, that will finally escape the confines of ordinary existence and somehow arrive in a world where our life and its contributions are permanent. The preacher says, that's not possible. Life in the mist, notice second, an unhappy business. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The preacher has told us what life in the mist is like. No lasting gain or profit or achievement. All we should expect from life is monotony, repetition, and death. But as one writer observed, it is one thing to say in general terms that verse 8, all things are full of weariness, and quite another to maintain the argument in the face of specific test cases, which is exactly what we come to in verses 12 and following. What about being wise? Is there nothing to be gained from a life of wisdom? Is there nothing to be gained from a life of learning? Is there nothing to be gained from a life of actually ordering things in a way that are efficient and matter and productive. Particularly when, verse 12, it is from the vantage of the king over Israel in Jerusalem. I mean, surely, at this point, we would be thinking, if anyone can gain from the toil and hard work of learning, it is the king with an inexhaustible amount of time and resources at his disposal. That's the reason all of us are so frustrated. We just don't have as much time as all of the other people. If we had time, we would finally figure it out. And if we had money, we would finally be able to do it. But because we don't have time and we don't have money, we're not able to put it together, so we just kind of grind on meaninglessly. But the king, everybody works for the king. And everybody has to give the king everything he needs and what he wants. Surely the king's the one who's able to figure it out, right? Wrong. It is unsurprising that we should begin with wisdom because Solomon was so famous for it. Just after the passage that Tim read for us earlier, we find this in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. Just write the reference down and you can go back and look at it. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of of Egypt. 
All right, just notice the metaphor there, sand on the seashore. Who's ever taken time to count all the sand on the seashore? Nobody. Why? Because it seems like there is an infinite amount. It is beyond comprehension how much sand is there. Solomon had more wisdom than that, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds, of reptiles and of fish, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. From our vantage point, this side of 1 Kings... It seems like Solomon was a smashing success. Wisdom brought him wealth and pleasure and length of days and honor and stability and renown and opportunity, and we would think happiness. But the first-person perspective of the king over Israel and Jerusalem in verses 13 through 18 tells us a different story, doesn't it? Look at verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Being king, or even having his prayer for wisdom answered by God, did not mean that he innately understood everything. He still had to pursue knowledge, which is exactly what he did. Verse 13, he applied his heart to seek and to search out by, which indicates means, wisdom. He read and he studied. He scanned and he scrolled. He listened and he learned. He asked and he followed up, and he did so comprehensively. He investigated, verse 13, all that was done under heaven. He left no stone unturned. He left no book unfinished. He left no question unasked. He gave himself completely and entirely and totally to the life of the mind because he wanted all of his conclusions to be as definitive as possible and to have them completely buttoned up. And do you know what he found out? Look at the end of verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Rather than totaling 42, he found out that life didn't add up to anything for him at all. The longer he looked, and the harder he tried to understand, the more he learned, the more frustrated he became with all of life's unsearchable questions and all of life's impregnable enigmas, until he realized that the best thinking man can do has no answer to all of our misgivings in life. It actually only sharpens them by its clarity, which led him to the exact same emptiness that we see in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 1. Look in verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under heaven, under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Just like my son Michael trying to catch the sunlight in his hand, the pursuit of wisdom led to nothing. So the preacher king concluded the first stage of his unhappy quest with this proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Phil Riken said some things in life are so bent out of shape that they resist all of our efforts to make them straight. There are many things in life which we 
wish could fi- we could fix, but can't any more than we can repair a crumpled fender using our bare hands. We suffer long-standing family conflicts, estrangement between former friends, wrong done to us by someone in power, disease or disability, our own moral failings, the accidents we caused, the list goes on and on and on. There is always something in life we wish we could bend back into shape, and sometimes our efforts to do so actually end up making things worse. The preacher learned. That what is crooked cannot be made straight. No matter how hard we try this side of eternity, we cannot bend our lives in a different direction. There are people that we just simply cannot manage. There are problems that we cannot solve. There are questions that we will never have answered. There are pressures that we simply just cannot escape in our life. And now, nor can we make any of our life add up, which is the whole point of the second part of this proverb, which the Good News Bible translates like this. You can't straighten out what is crooked, and you can't count things up that aren't there. Like the account that refuses to balance, we can tell that there's a deficit, but we just cannot figure out exactly what it is. And even when we try to make an adjustment so that everything finally reconciles in our books, if we're honest, we know that somehow we've just fudged the numbers. The futility of it all, observed by the preacher, and verse 14 is seen under the sun. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. He has seen the stubborn refusal of humans to accept things as they are and to live as in the world as it is. But friends, that is the whole point of the wisdom literature of the Bible is to teach you how to live in the world as it actually is, not as you have made it up to be, not as someone is telling you that it is. It is to live in the world as it really is. And he concluded that refusing to accept reality only leads to unhappiness in verse 13 and weariness in verse 14 because the wind cannot be caught no matter how fast we clench our fist. Life in the mist, an unhappy business. Notice third, an existential crisis. Look in verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. When the pursuit of wisdom fails, he actually looks inward. Notice it in verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. You can almost feel the existential and epistemological crisis here in Ecclesiastes. I have read and I have read. And I have learned and I have learned. And I have studied and I have studied. And it still doesn't make any sense. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Wisdom helped him see the world clearly, but he didn't like what he saw. The life of the mind just led to a frustrated mind and a heart-to-heart with himself. Verse 15, I said in my heart. And then he decides that because he's mastered intellectual pursuits, he will now resolve, verse 17, to apply his heart to know wisdom and 
to know madness and folly. If the life of the mind won't satisfy, surely the moral life will satisfy. This is the preacher's attempt to use wisdom to separate for us right from wrong, good from evil, light from dark, wisdom from madness and folly, which only reinforces that there is nothing new under the sun because this is the approach of so many people today. Even if they are unsure how God fits into the whole picture, even if they're not even sure that there is a God who exists at all, they still want to live a good moral life because they think deep down that this will finally give them meaning. So they spend all of their time making the best of life's monotony by applying the golden rule and doing good to other people because that makes them feel good about themselves. They volunteer and they serve. They support and they fundraise. They give charitably and they don't even claim it on their taxes. And their hope will be that all of this effort will finally set them free of the ordinary person. But what is the result of the preacher's refined pursuit of wisdom here? Did distinguishing right from wrong, moral from immoral, good from bad finally help him when he finally knew the right way to do everything, which is what we all want, the one right way to do absolutely everything? Not at all. He says, verse 17, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind because it doesn't bring release from the unhappy business of living in this world. You can know all of the right things and do all of the right things and go all of the right places after you've read all of the right books and studied with all of the right people and still be empty and have no meaning. Brothers let that cr- and sisters, let that crash upon you. That life leads nowhere. That is the life of the modern person. I will finally figure it out. And ultimately he found that what it actually leads to is an increased grief. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is why people say ignorance is bliss. You can't be frustrated if you don't know and don't care. But as David Gibson noted, we believe the opposite is true. We are sure Education can save us from all of our ills and place us on the road to happiness. Brothers and sisters, in a white-collar community like Westchester, just outside of Princeton, and one of the most populated collegiate areas of our nation, hear this. The preacher shows us that this particular pursuit is as old as the hills. Get into the best schools, study hard, achieve the best results, learn and learn and learn, Get up the ladder, and you will go far. Aim at the top, and the sun will shine upon you. Join the academic professionals, and you will surely soar on new heights of your knowledge. It is not so, says the preacher. The more I knew, the sadder I became. Wisdom and knowledge and its application to ethics dispel the illusion that conventional morality will actually satisfy us at all. Life in the mist, an unhappy business, an existential crisis, notice fourth, a dead end. Turn to chapter 2 and look in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, if you'd like to write in your Bible, you should write what you saw in chapter 1, verses 
12 through 18, that same phrase, wisdom and madness and folly. Specifically, it's in verses 16 through 18. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now the preacher isn't all doom and gloom. He knows that wisdom is better than folly. There's no argument about it. He says it. Just like he knows that there is more advantage in morality than immorality. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. But that is no longer his concern. Because he has realized that the great shadow haunting his unhappiness and maddening his crisis is death. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. All his learning and all of his morality has revealed that death stalks both the wise and the foolish. Brothers and sisters, regardless of how wisely you live your life or how foolishly you squander absolutely every minute of it, no matter how high you reach in the academy or how far you fall in the countenance of everybody else, in the end, you will be indistinguishable from everyone who ever lived. Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Both the king and the village idiot will die and be forgotten. Now, friends, if that depresses you, then you have not reflected very long on the brevity of your life or thought very much about the reality of your death, which, as the pastor of this church, that is one of the greatest dangers of a young congregation. We have very few hospital visits. Very few people are dying regularly in our midst. We still believe, because we're young, most of us, or youngish, or young at heart, that we have strength and that we'll live forever that we're going to beat the system, that we're going to make it, we're going to achieve, that our life will be the one that's different than everybody else's. And then a pandemic slaps you right in the face and changes everything about your life. And everything that you thought was familiar is taken away from you. And nothing has enduring value anymore. The preacher is telling us But the reason that this is depressing for us is because we expect too much out of this life. We expect too much out of this life because, verse 17, everything done under the sun, chapter 2, verse 17, is vanity and striving after the wind. 
And only when we are confronted with the reality of our death and the impermanence of our achievements will we actually be able to finally live in the world as it actually is and enjoy the life that we have, that we have been given. Which is why so many of us do not enjoy what God has given to us. God has given us so many good things, but we complain and we grumble and it's never enough. He has given us a marvelous privilege to not only live, have another day, praise God, but to hear his word freely preached. And for those of us who are believers, to trust in his Christ. And yet we find ourselves, I want this, I want that, I want her, I want him, I want to be there, I want to be with that. Because we are expecting too much out of this life. The preacher says, only when we are finally confronted with our mortality, Will we actually live and enjoy all of the good things because we realize it is only for a moment that we are here. And if we are to do anything that has lasting or eternal value, it must be done differently than the way that the world is doing it. So how can we enjoy what is impermanent? And in this way, the preacher has led us straight to the feet of our Lord Jesus the one who has power over death and gives everlasting life to those who repent of their sins and trust in him by faith. In John chapter 11, verse 25, we see people who are confronted with death and Jesus looks them square in the eyes and he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Though you die, yet shall you live if you trust in Jesus Christ your Lord. Friends, the only way to tap real meaning in life is to find that meaning in Jesus Christ. You will die, and you will die because you are a sinner. Your sin has not only separated you from God, but the Bible tells us your sin has killed you. It has earned you, as was read for us earlier, nothing but death. But the free gift of God, the free, merciful, gracious gift of our God is that he gives eternal life through Jesus Christ, the one true Lord. He died for people who deserve to die themselves. He gave his life so that you might have life. He lives, and because of his life, you will live. He was raised, and you will be raised. This is the story of the gospel. This is the message of the Bible. From beginning to end, it is telling us that there is hope only in this Jesus, this one who has come to take away our sins, this one who comes to give us everlasting life, this one who comes to make these few short years that we live this side of eternity eternally meaningful by believing in him so that we might live forever with him. That is what the gospel has to give to you. Resurrection life by giving you from repentance and faith. Reconciliation with God. Do you believe this? Friends, if you believe this, then you need not despair. By reading the book of Ecclesiastes, Yes, you will come to the end of yourselves, and perhaps all of us will have an existential crisis along the way. But we are reminded that what is before us is resurrection and life. And if you are here and you do not believe that, 
And this is not only depressing and sound, but it's depressing because you haven't trusted in Jesus. We invite you this day, right here, right now, to trust in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the reason that we gather, to remind ourselves of the gospel and to invite you to believe it with us. You can believe the gospel today. Brothers and sisters, you can behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by faith. You can trust in Him right now. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins. You can ask God to help you trust in His Christ, and He will do just that. He will forgive you, and He will cause you to trust in His Christ. Come to Him. He will never cast the repentant person out. Believe in Him right now. We implore you. We entreat you. If you have any questions about what that means or how to do that or what the Bible says about the Christian life, first, we would like you to take that Bible that is underneath your seat, especially if you don't have one. Consider that a gift from us to you. And second, find one of us so that we might talk to you about the gospel. I'll be in the courtyard, but all of the members of this church would love to open the Bible with you. And for those of you who are believers in here and you're despairing, You've been trying to tap meaning out of life in other ways. This is a reminder to us to find that meaning only in Christ, to find that meaning only in Jesus. He alone is the one who satisfies the weary soul and gives us hope of the future. How do you come to know him as Lord? Belief. Notice what Jesus says after he speaks this to them. Do you believe this? Not do you know this. The preacher knew a lot. But do you believe this for yourself? Brothers and sisters, I can't answer that question for you. You can be on the membership role of this church and have fooled all of us because you've articulated the right thing. But do you believe this for yourself? And is belief in that changing the way that you live in this world? If we follow the wisdom of Jesus Christ, eventually life will add up. It will never add up to something as simple as 42. It may never add up this side of eternity. But we're going to leave the final calculations to Jesus because he alone will make sure all of the books will balance in the end, including our own personal account, which he has reconciled by his own blood. Soon our frustrations this side of eternity will be over, but we will be with Jesus forever. And we will find all of the answers to the questions that we have been asking in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, for confronting us with life as it really is. And we pray that you would teach us to live in this world as it really is. It is one of ruin and death, we live in the land of the dying and only by faith in Jesus Christ will we go to the land of the living where people will never die again. Father, help us to set our eyes on him. Help us to set our affections on him. Cause us to believe in him. Make us trust in him. Remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh. Father, we pray, do this right now in this service of corporate worship. Father, we pray for all of the ways that we have despaired that you would forgive us and you would help us to set our minds on Jesus, the resurrection and the life. The one who looked death right in the faith, face and went to the cross anyways and died in the place of his people. He died for us. Father, may we trust in him. Help us to, re to sing with renewed vigor 
to do so joyfully and gratefully because of all that he has done for us. And help us to find our meaning in him. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the people of Christ Church Westchester said, Amen.